Father, would you give us this vision this morning and do it by your spirit as we gaze upon your son through his word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, you can take your Bibles with me now and turn to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew will be in chapter 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 16, begin reading in a few moments in verse 24. That's uh, page 822 in the Bible provided for you. College students, welcome to Heritage. We pray that you come again and again and again and tear up one day when you have to leave because you graduate and the Lord takes you elsewhere. Some students stay and make home here. The church is filled with, with them. If you are, by the way, seeking vocational pastoral ministry for your future, I would love to meet you. We have a couple ways we seek to strengthen young men who seek to be preachers and pastors women in ministry as well, but for those of you who are young men, we have a preaching cohort that meets monthly and a preaching workshop we go to annually, and there's an internship that you may consider. Love to visit with you. Before we read a few comments to set this up, last week we, we looked at the doctrine of divine election, the Lord's decision before ours. Well, this week we have a sermon on our decision before the Lord. We're taking a short break from our series through Genesis to pick up our ongoing series on baptism. We do these however often, about however often we baptize somebody. And from Matthew 28, we learn that baptism is a sign of entry into Jesus's kingdom, a covenant sign, a public sign, a community sign, after which we will say to Zach, brother, and he is ours even as he is Christ's. From Romans 6, we saw that baptism is a sign of death and new life in Christ. Every sign has a particular picture and thing it's trying to communicate. And as we've seen, baptism is a sign of union with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. From Acts 13, we saw that baptism is a sign of God's sovereign work. We baptize and somebody decides to be baptized, but this is the result of God's sovereign work before even eternity to pursue a person for himself. And today we come to Matthew chapter 16, baptism, a sign of danger. Read with me. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. From time to time, I'm in a position of needing to sign one of those little waivers, a piece of paper that says, if I die, it's not your responsibility. You may have signed one of those before. Um, My kids are starting to sign those things. I remember doing this for a ropes course. There's something about walking high above the ground on a thin rope and feeling like your life is in danger, but not actually being in danger. And sometimes you need to convince a child of this. You must go on this awesome roller coaster with me. It was expensive to get in the gate and you will love it and you will not die. But of course, there is a little danger. If I was to neglect a rule, I may suffer harm in some way. If something were to break, in other words, if something were to go wrong... I could die, I could be harmed. But of course, there is that danger. But when it comes to following Jesus, the waiver does not say, if you die, we are not responsible. 
Quite the opposite, friends. The waiver says you should be prepared to die. The path of Jesus is the path of the cross. This is the waiver we sign ourselves. This is the waiver that we hold out to others. Jesus' last words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And Jesus' repeated words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Our sermon will have three parts, something to forsake, something to take, and why we should do both, even how we can do both. This sermon is all about the cost of discipleship. Let me be clear, not works salvation, but how salvation works. We are not saved through our discipleship. We are saved by Jesus's death, but there is no call to true discipleship that is not also a call to the path of Jesus's death. So in keeping with Jesus's own purpose in saying these things and Matthew's purpose in putting them here, this sermon will shake the faith of some and bring you, I pray, to true faith. The sermon will comfort others who experience so much hardship, even for Christ's name, but hold on. That is a reason for assurance that you're his. And the sermon will unite us all in the work of making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. What a serious matter this is. First, something to forsake, something to forsake. A disciple forsakes his life. A disciple forsakes his life. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Clearly, Jesus does not know how to close a deal. First, give me all your money. How about all your life? No trial period, no negotiation, your whole life up front now. I got a call from a solicitor this past week. I confess, I'm not like the best of you who evangelized the solicitor. Go for it. Uh, preach to us about how awesome it is. Encourage your shepherding group. Uh, admonish me. Uh, I have had caught a vision for that before by lovely saints who are good at it. I just usually know when it's a solicitor and don't answer the phone. In this case, I was sitting on my couch in the middle of a conversation with my wife. For some reason, I answered the phone. I would say it's not normal for me to do that. I politely but graciously try to end it. In most cases, I think of how they're an image bearer. I think of how they're trying to make a buck and how many people must be rude to them in a day and how I don't want them to waste any more of my time than they need to or their own. And so I need to end this quickly. Well, in this case, it was Sirius XM radio and I'd gotten this one a few times and I just did a long Michael Scott no. If you're committed, no. And then I just laughed and I said, you guys have to take me off this list. I'm so done with the list. And I wanna say I was warm about it and and surprised her a little bit. In any case, she started reading a disclaimer very fast and promised me I would be off the list in short order. They were offering me something for free. 
But I knew the cost would come, and then I figured there'd be some type of hidden cost. But there is a difference between Sirius XM radio and Jesus. I don't need XM radio. Sirius needs me. But Jesus does not need me. I need Jesus. I am at the bottom of a pit trapped in darkness of my own guilt. I dug it myself with my sin and there is no way out. And he offers me rescue. But I cannot keep the pit too. Come on. He begins with the cost. Jesus is up front. No bait and switch. There's also no fine print in his comments here. He is loud and clear. He's up front. Jesus is also loud and clear. He's concise. And he repeats himself. You can't get away from these comments in the Gospels. He says this kind of thing over and over again. How many hundreds of times must he have in his preaching ministry? The Gospel writers have threaded their Gospels with these these, uh, conditions, if you will. He says it to his disciples who will make disciples, as in this case. And he says it to the crowds who would presume to be his disciples to sort them out. He knows what he's doing. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 19, just three chapters to your right. He also said these kinds of things to individuals who would approach him, who asked good questions, who showed a willingness, even an eagerness to be long to him. Here's one such encounter, starting in Matthew 19, verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go sell all that you possess and Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, now a teaching moment, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, well, who can be saved? You see, they may think that the wealthy person was wealthy on account of God's blessing of him, on account of his obedience. Consider how obedient this individual was. Who then can be saved? Who, if he can't be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging 12 tribes of Israel. And what does it mean to forsake yourself and follow Jesus? Well, here's a nice little list in verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, the issue with that rich young ruler was not the matter of his wealth. It wasn't even essentially the matter of a desire to obey. It was that Jesus himself as his great treasure 
was of no part in his equation. Jesus was not worth his life. He did not understand or truly desire the eternal life about which he asked. We get a nice little list here, don't we? Jesus says, forsake yourself, deny yourself. The one who comes after him must deny himself. Well, here's a list of what that might include. We've got houses. In verse 29, the biggest investment most of us will make. We cry when we sign the papers. They're filled with all of our other investments that we make. Fruit of our hard work, the mark of where we've landed in life, our social status, the place where we keep all of our heirlooms, our home, our houses. He says, brothers or sisters or father or mother or children, or in a word, family, the people we love the most, the people we know the best, who know us the best, the ones who brought us into the world, the ones we grew up with, the ones we brought into the world. He said, whoever leaves, but not all of us will leave, right? So what about those of us who don't, on account of Jesus, have to leave father and mother and, and children? Well, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus was riffing on the same sermonic point. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. How much love are we talking about? Well, let Jesus put it this way from Luke's gospel. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let that sink in. If you don't love Jesus, you don't belong to Jesus. If you don't love him more than this list, Jesus says you can't be my disciple. If you're with him, he is more important to you than any of them. Hate here is certainly in relative terms. He means only to say in a provocative and emphatic fashion just how much love he's talking about. So you've got homes and everything in them. You've got family and all that they include. And then you've got lands here. Your people, your culture, everything familiar, your place, those roads, those memories. We can be grateful for the influence of Christianity on our culture and the place in which we live, but we should be wary of cultural Christianity. He says, leave lands where we're Christians because it feels right. We grew up with it. Jesus calls us to leave everything that feels familiar minus him. In other words, he relativizes everything we might rightly or wrongly prioritize. Could it be that this is why so many reject Christianity and Jesus, not because they've looked into it and found it difficult as it has been said, but because they have looked at us and found it too trivial? Like why? Why follow him? How trivial. Jesus is trivial when we make him a part of life Jesus is trivial when we make him an improvement upon our life. Jesus is even trivial when we just make him the best part of our life. Jesus is trivial when we make him merely the answer to life's problems. There are all kinds of reasons someone might not believe in Jesus. Certainly Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of Jesus. 
But what a shame it is when he has used, could I say poetically, the veil of our own trivial lives and discipleship to cover their eyes. Friends, let us be a church where we have forsaken homes and family and lands for his sake and where that is apparent in our affections and in our ordering of life and in our very hearts. So if anyone is to come after me, let him deny himself. He wasn't kidding. That's the first line in Jesus's pitch. The hard stuff first, right? Let's see how Jesus transitions to the good stuff because he wants people to follow him, right? Maybe it gets better. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, all right, and take up his cross and follow me. Now, maybe we hear that and think, oh, that's actually not terribly hard. I already do that. Just this past week, I decided not to have a Dr. Pepper with my salad. Because once I ordered salad, because I'm being healthy, it's kind of silly then to order a Dr. Pepper, which I've done before. Like, uh, I'll go with a salad. I'll have a Dr. Pepper. We all have our crosses to bear. The AC unit's been out in my part of the building. And I had a little meeting on Sunday mornings with the team that helps plan the service. And we bore our cross for 10 minutes as we spoke. And, and we prayed with the, with the AC out, that silly little phrase, let us stop it. Jesus is saying, see the lines there to the gas chamber? Follow me. See the lines to the gas chamber? Get in line behind me. That's what he's saying. This is an escalation of terms. They did not at that moment imagine Jesus on the cross. They could have and should have, but they would see him there and remember, and we have seen him there and remember. There is something to forsake, and friends, there is something to take. A disciple takes up Christ's death. A disciple takes up Christ's death. Okay, now I've asked you to give up everything you've got. Now here's what you're going to get. You're going to bear a cross. Jesus is not saying they'll pay for their own sins. No, he'll do that. He is saying that they will follow him. And in following him, they should expect to follow him in public shame, rejection, trouble of every kind, and danger. Forgoing these things and foregoing danger is the exception. Danger is the expectation. And we will meet saints for whom that statement is patently obvious one day around the throne. And may we say we prayed for you, we thanked God for you, and we were ready to join you. A little context will be helpful here. In the context of the book of Matthew, Peter just identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and he was spot on. And it's at that point that Jesus told them that he must suffer. We're back in chapter 16, if you haven't turned there. Chapter 16, verse 21, from that time, after Peter said, you are the Christ, Jesus began, it says, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And it says he began to teach them these things. The Old Testament would testify to this, albeit in a mysterious and at times veiled way. But he began to teach them in explicit ways about what he would suffer. On the one hand, these were familiar thoughts. 
There had been other messiahs popping up and even being killed in this fashion. And so I suppose, they suppose, this could always be their end. They were following a self-proclaimed messiah. On the other hand, they aren't following him because they think that he's a loser. They believe he's the messiah, which is a messiah, which is a winner. Messiahs don't submit to shameful public defeat. But Jesus is actually insisting on this. I will be a loser. You will join me. I can hear the fire chief right now saying to his crew when they get notice of a burning house. Now, we're going to go into that building and then we're going to let it burn down and collapse on us all. And I will go first. I can hear the police chief saying to his officers as they put on riot gear, "Um, you can leave that gear on the walls. We're going to go without any of that. We're all going to get killed. I will go first. We can empathize with Peter a bit when Jesus first says this of himself. And Peter took him aside. Like this could be a little embarrassing, Jesus. And he began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Like, I just said you're the Christ, and you said you're the Christ, so put these thoughts out of your mind. But if Peter's comments are understandable, they are also unacceptable. For Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Peter's response is understandable only from a human perspective, but that is not the right perspective. And so friends, any vision of Christianity that holds out a savior that does not hold out the shame of the cross is satanic. Any vision of Christianity that holds out an exciting vision of the church without the shame and weakness and foolishness of the cross, is satanic. Any vision of Christianity that holds out a victorious Christian life without the life of shame and trouble is satanic. Any vision of Christianity held out before our children that does not include these upfront disclosures is not actually Christianity but sets them up to be twice the children of hell. And could this have something to do with those now famous statistics of the number of young people that grow up and leave the faith and fly away from the faith? We sold them a Jesus without strings attached, and so they're not interested in the strings without any cost for following him. And so when they're presented with a cost, it doesn't make any sense. They weren't ready for it. And so my kids have been hearing, this could cost you your life, by the way, since they could understand the name Jesus. I'd encourage the same. Now let us make sure we're not a misunderstanding Jesus here. Is Jesus really saying we cannot be his disciples unless we deny ourselves and take up a cross? Could he instead be talking about, shall we say, serious discipleship? So there's salvation, which is by grace through faith, yes, but then there's discipleship or there's serious discipleship. There's those who really go hard after Jesus. And of course, that's what he wants. And maybe he's just overstating things to make a point. In other words, is Jesus really wanting us to sit down before putting on our faith in him 
and actually count the cost involved with following him? Is he wanting us to do that? And so that I may not put words in the Lord Jesus' mouth, let us read some words from his mouth. Listen to, to these words from another sermon of Jesus where he riffed on some of the same points to a crowd from Luke chapter 14. Just listen. Great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my own disciple. For which of you, uh, shall we say, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has anything to commit, complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to conquer another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate over whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Must a person know all of the Bible's doctrine of salvation to come to Christ? No. That will take eternity, and even our best attempts to articulate it will be improved on for eternity. Must a person obey Jesus and all that he commanded before he comes to Christ? Certainly not. That is the project of the whole Christian life, teaching them and learning to obey all that Jesus commanded. But... Our whole doctrine of salvation and these truths must be brought under the control of this three-point sermon which Jesus just gave to us and which he gave over and over again. If you don't hate your life, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't bear your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. So count the cost or you cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus isn't like following someone on Instagram, passively watching, checking in and out, leaving them behind as you pursue your life. It is following him where he goes. And this is not work salvation, but this is indeed how salvation works. If you love the world, the love of the Father cannot be in you. How can I say otherwise and take Jesus seriously, friends? How can I say otherwise? Something to forsake something to take. And now something else, how we can do both. Three, a disciple knows what he's getting into. A disciple knows what he's getting into. Jesus has given us full disclosure of the costs and where we're to sign. Given all that we stand to lose, why ever would we do this? Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. There's the secret. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So why should we invest in this deal? Because it is a bargain at any cost. That's why. 
A disciple knows what he's getting into, and I mean that in two senses. A disciple knows what he's giving up, what she's giving up. If Jesus is the King of glory, the majesty of heaven, the risen Lord of eternity, then Jesus has claim on your whole life. And that's what it is to confess Jesus. Not as Savior apart from every other dimension of his identity, without which he can't save. He's better than houses and family and lands and everything in between. He really is. And he wants you to know how valuable he is. And a disciple knows what he's getting. True life. Eternal life, not the transience of houses. There's this ravine off the back of our house. We've got a little fence, and then if you peek over about an 80-foot drop, and if you want to go rappelling down there and crawling like I did with my daughter once, you'll find a car. It's been there about 50 years. It's not going anywhere unless they try to build on this ravine, which they, they won't. It was dumped there a long time ago, and it decays, and it's transient. And it was somebody's pride and joy. Now, the life Jesus offers doesn't end up on a hill in someone's backyard. When we follow Jesus to the cross, he's worth it. And we follow him through the cross. One reason I love our church and our elders for leading us this way a number of years ago is for our deliberate emphasis upon intergenerational relationships. Um, Like, that's the point of the church among other things. It may be that a person's closest, it may be that your closest and longest relationships are with someone your own age, and that's fine and good. It is the case for me. But our only relationships are not to be people our own age, maybe even not most of them. In fact, if you're doing church right, your church friends look about as diverse as the church, and that takes work, and that's the point of the church. It takes work. And I had the pleasure of visiting with Durwood Farmer about two weeks ago as he and Carol were watching the horizon and packing their home and getting ready to head out. Been a part of our church for, for many, many years. So many of you knew them dearly. A sweet meeting with only a few days left before they moved out. We shared a nice dinner with them when we met several years ago and they spoke about this possible future move. And here, here it was, here it was. A, a hard answer to their prayers, part of the plan. And, and we wanted to pray together before uh, they took off. He said at one point, and I won't forget looking at him as he said it, though the Lord, is, the Lord has just given me so much. The Lord has given me so much. And I remember thinking, and I know what he's taken. He took his boys to other lands. That's a way to give up family and lands at the same time. He took with them his grandchildren. I know so many of you raised your kids and prayed that they might be willing to leave for Jesus in that way, and it didn't happen. But it did in this case, and that was, that was hard, and it remains hard. But the Lord has given me so much, he says. He didn't mention those things as loss because they're not a net loss for him. They're not a net loss for them, not hardly. A far more everyday example. If you work with our tech team, you'll get to know Brian Birch, dear friend. He's not here this Sunday, which is maybe ironic if that's the right way to use that word and maybe a good time to mention him as well. He's here each Sunday at 7 a.m. sharp in the parking lot and has his checklist. He gets to work. Others of you serve with him diligently and sacrificially 
in a behind the scenes way. But if you correspond with Brian during the week, you'll find out he's in foreign lands. He's all over the world. He's all over the country. It seems like he's hardly home at times. Well, how is it that his travel doesn't take him away on Sunday after Sunday? Oh, it would. Oh, it easily could. But given his role, he's able to build his whole schedule at great inconvenience to itself and some to others around his commitment to serve you every Sunday. And so he's going to pull in at seven o'clock, no matter what time he got in on Friday. And he might be getting a plane on Monday. Uh, It's not a net loss for Brian. He's not sweating to be noticed or to earn something, but because his savior is so valuable to him. So don't be ashamed of self-interest in this matter of following Jesus. And so I can ask, what costs are you counting? What costs are you counting? Receive this as a challenge, but also as a comfort. If you're caring and obedience for Jesus, for elderly parents, he sees it. If you sacrifice some advance in sports or even your career to prioritize Lord's Day gatherings, hosting an exchange student, generously giving to the church, fostering and adopting, so many of you are and have done that, College students who sacrifice some of your social life and opportunities on campus to be a part of a real church family. We wanna make that easy for you, help us. Dan Wilkin working on that AC unit all the time, he's great. Late Saturday night teaching prep for so many of you who will teach here on Sunday morning, later in the morning. Those of you who give benevolent, generously to benevolence. Now there's so, so many costs that we could enumerate and, and you know them yourself. And you know maybe what they ought to be. I call you to costly discipleship, friends. Mark Sayers has written, the heresy hidden under the surface is our belief that God would not ask Western people to deny themselves. There is no discipleship. You cannot be my disciple unless you renounce your life. So renounce it. What does this mean for us today? Let me gather some thoughts under a few headers here. First, friends, just let let us take up costly discipleship. Faith in God's promises has always come at a cost. It did for Abraham, it did for Moses, it did for Jesus, and he calls us to take costs. Believing in Jesus for eternal life and deliverance from eternal punishment relativizes life with all of its joys and troubles. It is amazing to me what we put ourselves through for various worthy goals, med school, that achievement, that championship, that that career. We know how to work hard. We know how to take on costs, Jesus is worth every cost, which is why his call to discipleship involves the demonstration that we know exactly what we have found in him. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. And so friends, take up costly discipleship, or in other words, treasure Jesus above your life. And if you're here and realize that you have always believed in Jesus, but more like the demons believe, you believe he's a true Messiah, but he hasn't been the Messiah worthy of your life. He is the Messiah worthy of your life and take him for that today. Believe in him truly and follow him. So let's take up costly discipleship. Let's call others to it. I spent some time speaking with a pastor friend this past week and wanna relay a little something that I got in that conversation. You might wonder what we talk about. Um, We often talk about what we're preaching. That's what's exciting to hear from both sides. The other favorite thing to talk about is the invisible miraculous work of God in your lives 
And there's plenty of that we get to see. This brother was meeting with a man from the community over the gospel of Mark. And over the weeks, it seemed increasingly clear that he was believing Jesus's words, even excited about going to church and reading the Bible. So my friend challenged him to read the New Testament in 90 days. Well, let's just get to work on this. This is a way of testing his affection for Jesus. One way, well, guess what? He blew through the New Testament, straight through it. Another natural test for unmistakable discipleship is is a test for allegiance to Jesus. So said my friend, you realize that if you do this, you could lose your family. Your wife doesn't believe. Now, he's not just grabbing for things here. I mean, you'll know if you've been a Christian long enough and seen people come to faith, they come to faith and there are costs. You realize that if you, if you do this, if you join me in this church in discipleship in Jesus, you could lose your, you could lose your family. Well, what do I do, he says. Well, you're asking the right question. You just need to know that if you commit to Christ, your wife could say she wants out. It's happened before. And you could see it in his eyes, he said. He was counting the cost. And so my friend held out that cost and at the same time, a vision of Jesus worshiped by people forever. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. This might be what you have to go through, but this is the Jesus you get to come to. He was tortured with this question of the cost of discipleship for two months, two months. And then this text, he is worthy. He is. Whatever it costs, he's worth it. That's a disciple. He might have been regenerated before that, but you can't tell apart from a cost. Find me a Bible verse that tells me you can tell you're a Christian apart from a cost. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved, which is a cry of desperation to a Roman Christian in the context of a severe threat of persecution. There is no discipleship apart from real costs, and there is no identifying a true disciple apart from real costs. Hear the words of Jesus this morning. He means it, and he loves you because he's worth it, and so do I. And this man is a better husband for having counted the cost of losing her for Jesus' sake and he is loving her to faith and she is coming to church and she is asking all the right questions and they are taking their time with her. In fact, it turns out that she's tempted to join in just because she is maybe afraid that her husband could take a step away from her. Oh, you never know what someone will be thinking. A reason to make sure she counts the cost too. This, friends, is our evangelism strategy. Jesus did not come to gather a crowd. He came to gather his church. And that's what he leads us in doing. And so this is our church discipleship strategy. We aren't calling people to believe in Jesus if by that we mean to assent to the truth that he is savior. We're calling them to unflinching, costly discipleship. Third, let us actually look now for costly discipleship. Let us look for costly discipleship. This connects to baptism. It was recently suggested to me that we should baptize anyone who makes a profession of faith, who understands and professes the gospel, who does not give us a compelling reason not to baptize them. 
to offer a person a public one-time symbol of a whole congregation and spiritual leader's agreement that they are eternally safe with God. A public signature, if you will, that he and we are in this to the death without any compelling reason not to baptize them on profession and understanding we baptize. Is that what the Lord Jesus would have me lead you to do and lead your elders to lead you to do and what we all should do? And the answer is no. Jesus wants us to baptize every disciple as soon after conversion as possible, and it is the pattern. The pattern includes more than that, discipleship that is plain. Jesus was looking for compelling reasons, in other words. That's a way to sum up the sermon. He was provoking those who came to him to show their true colors, giving people reasons not to follow him. And he was teaching his own disciples how to discern true discipleship. There is some soil that is hard and others is rocky. And when persecution and trial comes, it chokes out the word, the cares of this world, the desires for other things, and they fall off. And it withers and dies, though it looked true. But then there is the soil on which the seed falls. And it is not all seed that falls on this soil that grows up and multiplies. And you can see it, in other words. Baptism, friends, itself was originally a cost. It would be like raising your hand, if this is how you say his name, to say, I'm with that Assange WikiLeaks guy. Whatever you make of what he did, he's in trouble with the U.S. government if he sets foot on soil. I'm actually with him. I'm actually with Jesus, the one the Romans and everyone crucified. In baptism, Christians raise their hand to say, I'm with him. And in baptism, we continue today to raise our hand and say, I'm with him. Never was there, friends, a more important waiver to read than the ones I've read to you this morning. And never was there a more important waiver for us to ask others to sign with all seriousness. Now, before we baptize Zach, there's another thing in this passage I wanna show you. Let's conclude how Jesus concluded his little sermon, or at least this edition in Matthew 16. Verse 27 through 28, we almost read this and go, oh, he switched to another topic. For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. 27 is clear. Jesus will return to judge and to save. Praise the Lord. We look forward to that part of the reward. What did he mean by this last line? People have answered it in different ways. Some say they, he expected them to see him return, but Jesus was wrong. It seems to me that we must say whatever he was talking about, it did happen in their lifetime and they did see it. Some say he was talking about his transfiguration or his death where his power and his kingdom was on display. And either of those could be the case, but they're awfully close for him to say, someone here won't taste death, being as they were only days away. A third view seems right to me, and it frames baptism beautifully. I think he did, mean, did indeed mean that these disciples would see his power and kingdom before they died. And that kingdom and power they saw with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and the inbreaking of Jesus' kingdom and power in the church, the establishment of his church, the day when men and women from every nation would read Jesus' terms and conditions clearly, the waiver, 
and say, I'm in, and call others to do the same to the ends of the earth at great cost to themselves and even their heads. See the kingdom, friends, in this gathering in this room on this Lord's day and see the power of this kingdom on display in this baptism. Let's pray. Father, we embrace these words of Jesus this morning and help us to embrace these words of Jesus this morning. That following him is at a great cost to ourselves. That following him means bearing his cross and the shame of following a condemned man. And help us to embrace the great truth that he is worth it. And that by losing our lives, we actually find them in him. And that if we lose everything in this life, everything transient but have him, we have all we need and indeed eternal life with him. Father, comfort us with the indications of costs that we've even embraced, Westerners as we are, with the assurance that we're yours. For indeed, you are gracious to make us pay costs in the path of Jesus. Oh, they may be trite next to losing our heads, but we have lost things. And this life is hard on account of Jesus and comfort us with the, with the confidence of knowing that we belong to him when we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.